The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The House will return Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. Then both the House and the Senate are set to leave for their August recess and not return until September. Last week in the House, the House came back to work Monday and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up a number of resolutions ending various states of emergency that have been in existence for a number of years. All five of them failed. None of them won more than 30 votes. Then the House took up HCON Res 57, expressing the sense of Congress supporting the State of Israel. It passed overwhelmingly by a vote of 412 to 9. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed H.R. 3941, the Schools Not Shelters Act, by a vote of 222 to 201, with four Democrats crossing over to vote with the Republicans. Then the House took up H.R. 3935, the Securing Growth and Robust Leadership in American Aviation Act, also known as the Federal Aviation Act Reauthorization Bill. Over the next 90 minutes, the House considered 20 amendments, of which it agreed to five. On Thursday, the House returned to consideration of H.R. 3941, the FAA reauthorization bill. It considered three more amendments, of which it agreed to one. Then the House voted on the bill as amended and passed it by a vote of 351 to 69. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 13 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and for the rest of the week, the House is scheduled to consider H.R. 4366. That's the FY 2024 Military Construction Veterans Affairs Appropriations Bill and H.R. 4368, the FY 2024 Agriculture Appropriations Bill. In addition, the House may consider SJ Res 9. That's a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval disapproving the rules submitted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service relating to endangered and threatened wildlife and plants, lesser prairie chicken, threatened status with Section 4D rule for the northern distinct population segments and endangered status for the Southern Distinct Population Segment. They may also vote on SJ Res 24, a CRA resolution of disapproval disapproving the rules submitted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service relating to endangered and threatened wildlife and plants, endangered species status for the Northern Long-Eared Bat. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted to confirm Rachel Bloomkatz to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to S-2226, that's the National Defense Authorization Act. On Wednesday, the Senate began considering amendments to the NDAA. More than 870 amendments were filed. First up, the Senate voted to agree to an amendment offered by Washington State Democrat Patty Murray regarding how beryllium sensitivity can be established under the terms of the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program Act of 2000. Then the Senate voted to agree to an amendment offered by Virginia Democrat Tim Kaine to require the advice and consent of the Senate or an act of Congress to suspend, terminate, or withdraw the U.S. from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization.
Then the Senate voted to reject an amendment offered by Kentucky Republican Rand Paul to express the sense of Congress that Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty does not supersede the constitutional requirement that Congress declare war before the United States engages in war. Then the Senate voted to reject an amendment offered by Missouri Republican Josh Hawley to amend the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 to clarify the meaning of the term aggregate value for purposes of the Presidential Drawdown Authority. On Thursday, the Senate began its work by taking a break from the NDAA to vote to confirm David M. Ullman to be Assistant Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Then the Senate returned to consideration of the NDAA, and the Senate voted to agree to an amendment offered by Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz to prohibit the export or sale of petroleum products from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and certain entities. Then the Senate voted to reject an amendment offered by Utah Republican Mike Lee to limit the availability of funds for the support of Ukraine. And then they were done for the week. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to two roll call votes related to the National Defense Authorization Act. First will be a vote on adoption of Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn's amendment numbered 931 on outbound investment. Second will be a vote on adoption of South Dakota Republican Mike Rounds amendment numbered 813 on farmland. In both cases, 60 votes are necessary for adoption. Now, more on the NDAA. As I mentioned, the Senate began its consideration of the NDAA last week, and Majority Leader Schumer says he wants to finish it up this week before the Senate breaks for its August recess. There were more than 870 amendments filed to the bill, and the Senate has only held recorded votes on six of them so far. Based on experience from years past, many, many, many of those amendments will be combined into giant on-block amendments, and many, many, many others will be voice-voted through, and the vast majority will never see the light of day. I expect the Senate will finish up its work on the NDAA this week and be ready to go to conference with the House when the two chambers return from the August recess. Now, Texas leaves Eric. On Thursday of last week, the state of Texas submitted a letter to the Electronic Registration Information Center, also known as ERIC, announcing its departure from the organization effective in 91 days. Texas becomes the largest Republican state to leave the voting list maintenance organization. Texas is the ninth Republican-led state to withdraw from ERIC over the last 18 months or so. It joins Alabama, Florida, Iowa, Louisiana, Missouri, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia in leaving the organization. Now to the Julie Sue nomination. More than four months ago, President Biden nominated, Secretary, uh, nominated uh, Deputy Secretary of Labor Julie Sue to serve as Secretary of Labor. We opposed her nomination then because we think she would be a terrible Secretary of Labor. Her record in office, especially in her last gig as California's Labor Secretary, shows that she is unqualified to manage an agency of this size. And even if she were qualified, her pro-big labor slant is not a good fit for the position. Several senators who caucus with the Democrats apparently think the same way we do because Majority Leader Schumer has not yet scheduled Sue for a confirmation vote. 
As of last week, she had set a new record, according to Louisiana Republican Bill Cassidy. He's the ranking member on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. No previous cabinet nominee had ever spent as much time waiting for a confirmation vote in a Senate that was controlled by the same party as that of the president who made the nomination. It's been more than 130 days now, and now we've got a new reason to oppose Julie Sue. Once again, Joe Biden is playing fast and loose with norms in Washington. Sue has been serving as acting secretary since she was nominated in March. That's typically done while a secretary designee awaits a final confirmation vote, and it's a courtesy. But in this case, Biden is abusing the Senate's courtesy. He knows he can't get her confirmed because Schumer can count votes and knows there are not 50 votes to confirm her. So instead, Biden is leaving her in place under a provision in a law dictating vacancy replacement at the Department of Labor that says she can serve as acting secretary indefinitely as long as her nomination is pending in the Senate. That law wasn't meant to let someone serve indefinitely in an acting capacity. It was meant to be used for a short period of time, not for two years. By abusing this law, Biden is denying the Senate its role in the confirmation process. It's wrong, and it needs to stop. Now, Democrats attack the Supreme Court. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee last week stepped up their attack on the Supreme Court. On Thursday, the Judiciary Committee marked up and passed on a straight party-line vote a bill to require the justices to adopt a code of conduct and create a system whereby members of the public, that is, left-wing activists, could submit ethics complaints against members of the court. Further, in a truly nutty idea, the bill would establish a panel of lower court judges to investigate and make recommendations against the members of the Supreme Court, that is, their superiors, the justices who pass judgment on their own rulings in response to ethics complaints. The bill aims to require members of the court to report gifts and such the same way members of Congress are required to report them. But let's be clear, this isn't about ethics reform. This is about controlling the court. The left is unhappy with the court's tilt and is even more unhappy with its rulings. Members of the Supreme Court aren't the same as members of Congress and shouldn't be treated the same way or be required to file paperwork the same way. Members of Congress are elected by the people and are accountable to the people in regularly scheduled elections. Members of the Supreme Court, by contrast, are appointed for life terms and are deliberately insulated from the people, the better to rule independent of political considerations. Congress has no power to do this. The Constitution gives Congress the power to create lower courts, but gives the Supreme Court the power to set its own rules. The good news is, even if this bill were to be brought up in the Senate, it would never even get a vote, let alone pass. It would never survive a filibuster, and there's a serious question about whether it would even hold every Democrat vote. Now, Democrats attack another Democrat. On the other side of the Capitol on Thursday, the House Judiciary Committee's Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government held a hearing on censorship by social media platforms featuring Robert Kennedy Jr., who is challenging President Biden for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. 
Kennedy, who became a leading vaccine skeptic during the COVID-19 emergency, was invited to testify to his experiences being deplatformed because he said and wrote things that didn't follow the approved narrative. But before he could even give his testimony, Democrats tried to censor him. First, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz moved to have the hearing moved to an executive session, which would have meant the hearing would have taken place behind closed doors. Her motion failed. Then ranking Democrat Stacey Plaskett, the delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands, tried to have Kennedy's 10-minute opening statement cut back to five minutes. If you want to cut him off and censor him some more, you're welcome to do it, said committee chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio. Kennedy responded to committee Democrats' attempts to stifle him by giving them the business. In addition, committee members heard from Emma Jo Morris, an editor of the New York Post, who testified about her experience watching social media platforms shut down circulation of the Post's October 2020 reporting on news related to information that came off Hunter Biden's laptop. She laughed when she related the story of some 51 intelligence community professionals who penned a letter saying the laptop story had all the hallmarks of a Russian deception operation, even though key members of the intelligence community, including the FBI, knew at the time that the laptop was genuine and most assuredly not any part of a Russian information operation. Now Democrats attack the First Amendment. The hearing on social media platform censorship Thursday was paired with the release the same day of a new Pew Research Center survey showing that Americans' attitudes toward free speech have changed. A majority of Americans now say the U.S. government and tech companies should each, quote, take steps to restrict false information and extremely violent content online, end quote. Support for efforts to restrict speech has grown in recent years. In 2018, for example, the percentage of U.S. adults who say the federal government should restrict false information was 39 percent. In 2021, it was 48 percent. In the new survey, that number has risen to 55 percent. By contrast, the percentage of Americans who say that free speech should be protected has shrunk. In 2018, 58 percent agreed with the statement, quote, Freedom of information should be protected, even if it means false information can be published, end quote. In 2021, that number was down to 50%. In the new survey, it's down to just 42%. Democrats are far more likely to support government suppression of free speech. 70% of Democrats support government restrictions on speech, while just 39% of Republicans do. Now to the Biden the Biden crime family saga. On Wednesday, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee held an extraordinary public hearing featuring two IRS whistleblowers, Gary Shapley, who had revealed himself more than a month ago, and Joseph Ziegler, who used the occasion of Wednesday's hearing to join his boss in stepping forward publicly. The two men had, for the last several years, been members of the 12-man IRS team investigating Hunter Biden for possible crimes. Over the course of six hours, the two men told an incredible story in a very credible way. They came across as reasonable, impartial men committed to upholding and enforcing the laws of this country, and it became clear why they were willing to risk their careers to do what they thought was the right thing, to ensure that everyone plays by the same rules. 
In their telling of the story, senior officials of the Department of Justice regularly blocked routine investigative steps and denied permission for the two and their team to open investigative lines of inquiry that might implicate a senior political figure, Hunter Biden's father, Joe. We've heard and read the elements of the story before. Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was a drug-addicted playboy who cheated on his wife and his taxes. In violation of the law against filing a false return, he deducted as business expenses the travel costs he paid for prostitutes to fly across the country and back to service his needs. In doing so, he didn't just violate tax laws, he violated the Mann Act, the federal law that prohibits interstate trafficking and prostitution, the same law for which Chris Christie once famously prosecuted Jared Kushner's father. In the whistleblower's testimony, we learned that senior Department of Justice officials refused to allow search warrants for Joe Biden's guest house at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, even though they acknowledged the IRS agents had reason to believe they would find evidence there related to their investigation. And senior DOJ officials tipped off Hunter's lawyers before a search could be conducted of a storage unit housing office records that could be useful in their investigation. And when FBI and IRS agents planned a coordinated day of action in December 2020 in which they would attempt to interview a dozen Biden associates all over the country, including Hunter himself, Senior DOJ officials tipped off Hunter's Secret Service detail the night before and the transition team and they were denied the opportunity to interview Hunter for their investigation. Shapley testified publicly to what he had said to the Ways and Means Committee in May, privately, that U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who worked out of Delaware, had told Shapley Weiss had tried but failed to partner with the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia to charge Hunter with felony tax evasion for tax years 2014 and 2015, when Hunter was receiving from a Ukrainian energy company money that he failed to disclose, despite his own business partners telling him he needed to disclose it to the IRS. Shapley further testified that Weiss had also told them Weiss had tried but failed to partner with the U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California to charge Hunter with felony tax charges in California for the tax years 2017, 2018, and 2019. Shapley testified that Weiss had told him Weiss had asked his superiors to be upgraded to special counsel status, but had been denied. The two agents testified that neither had ever seen the now infamous FBI FD-1023 form regarding a confidential human sources allegations that he had spoken with a senior executive of a Ukrainian energy company who claimed to have bribed both, Hyden, both Hunter and his father, Joe Biden, with $5 million each. That FBI document, first revealed weeks ago by Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, has now been released by Grassley, and you can find a link to it in this week's suggested reading. It's only four pages long, but I heartily recommend you take the time to read it for yourself. Democrats tried to minimize the whistleblower's testimony, claiming that all they were testifying to was differences of opinion regarding investigative and prosecutorial decisions. Ranking member Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin's argument was that prosecutors have different considerations than investigators and oftentimes come to different conclusions about what specific crimes should be charged. 
but the agents refuted Raskin's argument, pointing out that prosecutors and investigators had unanimously agreed to charge multiple felony counts of tax evasion against Hunter. Moreover, noted the whistleblowers, DOJ policy required that when a felony could be charged along with a misdemeanor, it should be charged. Not charging Hunter with felony tax evasion when the evidence supported the charge was a violation of long-standing DOJ policy. Two days before the hearing, committee chairman James Comer of Kentucky revealed that he had corroborating evidence in the form of new testimony from a new witness. The former FBI supervisory agent in charge of the FBI criminal investigation into Hunter Biden confirmed that he had been with Shapley on the December 2020 morning when the two law enforcement officers had been denied the ability to interview the subject of their investigation because DOJ officials had tipped off Hunter's Secret Service detail and the transition team the night before and had blown the plan for surprise interviews. In a fascinating side note, the FBI's general counsel had sent the FBI supervisory agent a letter on Sunday, the day before the agent was set to meet with the House Oversight Committee, to warn the agent not to cooperate with the committee's inquiry. Quote, the department expects that you will decline to respond to questions seeking non-public information likely covered by one or more components of executive privilege or other significant confidentiality interests, in particular information about deliberations or ongoing investigative activity in law enforcement matters, end quote, the general counsel wrote. Further, you should instead refer such questions to the FBI's Office of Congressional Affairs, the letter continued. Interestingly, despite the fact that Hunter's lawyers indicate they believe the investigation is over and Hunter has escaped a prison sentence, the FBI general counsel's letter to the supervisory FBI agent referred to the matter as what he called an open matter. Hunter's plea deal will go before a judge on Wednesday. The judge has the ability to accept the plea deal, which requires no prison time for Hunter, or the judge could deny the plea deal and sentence Hunter in the judge's own way. And that's our Washington report for this week.